the 495. I'm your host, Doug Sparks, editor-in-chief of Merrimack Valley Magazine. Slow news day. Today's we're, we're doing this uh, you know, live yeah, yeah. January 20th. We're competing with J-Lo and, uh, and Lady Gaga. Uh, really, they're involved in this? I, I believe they are involved. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, apparently the Just hoping for a great. peaceful day. Hoping for a peaceful day. My sense is that everything right now is peaceful. Good. We'll, 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 we'll see. So for those of you watching live and taking a break from, from the inauguration or taking a break from the news, thank you for joining us. Uh, other people are going to be tuning in uh, later. So let's dive right in with our guest today. His name is Matthew Thorne. He's the new or newish executive director of the Merrimack River Watershed Council. Uh, Matt, how are you doing today? Hi, Doug. Hey. I'm doing pretty well. Okay. Doing all right. Um, as you mentioned, I'd like to definitely send out an apology to Lady Gaga <laughs> and, uh, and President Biden for all our live viewers kind of sucking airtime away from them in the inauguration. So they're, um, they're wondering what's going on. What's going on with the numbers? The numbers are plummeting and everybody's <laughs> tuning into the 495. The numbers are rough. So apologies to them, but uh, we're, we're doing the right thing. We got to do what we have to do. Yeah. It keeps flowing, though. Sure, sure. So I'm going to start with a big, big open-ended question, and we can take this a number of directions. Um, and this is something even as, as, you know, I'm interested in, in the environment. I'm interested in, in, in the river. And I continue to find um, aspects of, of this question compelling, and, and I feel like my own myths are being busted. Uh, why is the health of the river important? And why is it important to the Merrimack Valley? And why is the health of the Merrimack River important to New England as a whole? It's a big, big question, I know. Yeah, yeah, okay, I like this. We're starting, we're going real big. Yes. So rivers are interesting creatures. Uh, they really do connect landscapes. And so I think one of the greatest myths out there is that somehow the state of New Hampshire, where I live, and the state of Massachusetts are somehow completely separated and maybe there's some physical boundary um, or some giant wall that makes them very different um, and make the political systems operate differently. But in truth, water is, is what is connecting them. And so the river, you know, it courses out of the White Mountains in New Hampshire uh, and all that snow melt and it's flowing down through southern New Hampshire and then uh, enters into Massachusetts and then flows through Lowell and Lawrence and Haverhill out to Newburyport in the mouth um, by the Gulf of Maine. And so when you see a, uh, a natural resource that moves in that way and, and, and patterns through the landscape, there's no way to look at it except that it is a connector. And it really does bridge all of these different landscapes and towns and cultures uh, and very dense urban cities and very rural landscapes and, and high mountains up in the whites and then, you know, beaches down in the coast. So it's really amazing. And, and so I guess I, this kind of big answer is, is trying to meet your question. But, you know, when we're connected through such an incredible resource that provides drinking water. So over 600,000 people. I mean, I don't know if there's too many re essential services more essential than the water that we drink, uh, you know, every day from the tap. So, so there's a big one. I think that as a cultural resource, the river is so important. I mean, how many families go to enjoy the Merrimack or, or other rivers in our area? Uh, by, by sitting on the beach or, or people who love to fish or jump in the water uh, or, or get a boat or, or learn how to paddle. I mean, uh, I think that it's, it's hugely valuable in that way. And, and that's kind of a, a segue to another aspect that I don't think a lot of people often think about is how it's, uh, for some people, a, a stabilizing force as far as mental health or spirituality or um, a, a kind of place of respite and, and refreshment, because if you sit along the banks of the river or, or you get out on a boat and, and you find a quiet moment, I, I think it's a really uh, a special and, and healing uh, force that, you know, we, we could all use a little bit more of in our lives. So that, that's a reason we really pump up a re recreation and access to recreation, because you kind of get it once you're out there. I think that it's a lot easier to just 
really get it when you get a little bit of time and you know, wind through your hair and you watch the ripples on the water and you, you're like, wow, this wet stuff comes from the mountains in a different state and flows here and I'm drinking it in my tap and, uh, and, and I can jump in it and swim in it. It's really an incredible substance. So. What are the biggest threats to the, to the river right now? Yeah, so the biggest threats. Um, well, there's quite a few things going on depending on what you're looking at. So we could divide them into some different buckets. So water quality would be one bucket. We're thinking of how clean is the water? So in that area, we really think about storm water is the most important threat. So all of these developments in cities and towns that have been built up around the river um, over centuries have allowed rainwater to hit that hard impervious surface, whether it be a roof or a driveway or a highway, um, and flow into the river and it's carrying all that, uh, any substance it's picking up along the way. So we call that runoff. And, and runoff is, is really the, the most uh, egregious um, uh, issue that, that we're looking at with water quality. And, you know, a lot of people hear about combined sewer overflows. That's another huge issue uh, with water quality. I'm sure we'll get into that in a little bit. But CSOs are really part of a broader picture about how we treat our water and, and where it goes and, and how it gets treated. So, so water quality is, is an important thing to talk about. Uh, another bucket that we can look at is water quantity. So in this, in, in 2020, another historic drought, we know that uh, water levels for some municipalities uh, up here where I live in New Hampshire, were at 125 year lows. So that, that's a little disturbing when you start to say, wait, where's, where's our drinking water levels at? And, uh, you know, it, it rains a lot in New England. So you kind of think, I think we take it for granted a little bit, but but we shouldn't because, um, you know, water isn't always there when we need it. So the flip side of drought is flooding in uh, in storms and intense uh, winter storms. So we know that as the climate is changing, we're seeing uh, increased severity of rainstorms and increased frequency of them. And so the water is not always falling exactly when we need it. It can be really intense in certain periods and then super dry uh, in other periods. And so uh, really water quantity would be a second bucket that we could think about. Is that something that can be managed? Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Is it something you're just like, oh, this is it. And we have to just deal with this problem or are there things that you can do? Absolutely. That's a really good question. So uh, on the level of <clears throat> municipalities and the state, there is regulation that can really make a, a, a big difference. And, and so when you get down to talking about these water supplies, I mean, some cities are looking at alternative drinking uh, water supplies. So the city of Manchester in New Hampshire, the city of Nashua, they're switching where they're getting their water from. And, and a lot of it is due to supply issues. Um, and then on a personal level, there's a lot of water conservation techniques um, that we put out there to, to our folks to teach people that, yes, it all makes a difference. These personal actions that you can take in your home kind of limit water use at certain times when the supply is strained, they go a huge way. So kind of paying attention to the, that kind of thing, trying to think, wow, should I really wash my car? Was there a, what kind of, what phase drought are we in? You know, is my water use in my home? Are there small ways that I could make a big difference? We all pull together and it really does help. What about um, as far as these buckets, uh, how much attention do you pay to invasive species? And, and I'm just I, I remember a couple of years ago, I was uh, reading all these scare articles about like Japanese knotweed and what it was doing to yards and how like it was making properties in England. You know, you couldn't even put them on the market if they had knotweed. And I was hearing about I, I lived in New York for a while and I, I heard there there were rivers that were just being choked out by by knotweed at a certain point. And um bittersweet like is this a problem with the merrimack river yeah 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 it is and, and i'll tell you a story about not we to feel uh put up with it yes so i worked for a long time out in the pacific northwest and uh, in habitat restoration oh one of the big issues out there is uh the salmon runs and so there's a lot of salmon streams that have 
really suffered from invasive species and knotweed is one of the most prolific. So there was some tests that uh, uh, an agency that I, I worked with did some experiments on knotweed. If you know knotweed, it's a pretty tough plant. It really, um, from what I understand, yeah, Japanese knotweed comes from a habitat it grows on the side of volcanoes. So it's, it's used to growing. It, it can grow in anything. It can grow through concrete in your garage, just like you said. So it's a tough plant. It was spread around the U.S. And so we're trying to get rid of it out in the, in the Pacific Northwest because, like we said, it's choking out these streams. It's reducing the cover of other native plants and really giving the salmon a hard time. Hmm. So the experiment was to see how can we get rid of knotweed. So it was a seven-year experiment. <clears throat> One test was to dig it out. Uh, dig it out every year. Dig out the, the roots. See what happens after seven years. Zero progress. Zero. I think it actually got worse. The other one was to cover it with black tarp. So you like cut it all down and cover it. It's like, what could survive under a black tarp? Like not very much. And then, you know, can you imagine this like moment seven years later, like we're going to lift up the black tarp. What are we going to find? And they lift it up. It's doing fine. Like sprouts (laughs) right up as soon as they leave it off. And it actually had kind of migrated and moved away. So unless you have like, acres and acres of black tarp, which has its other environmental problems, hmm. probably not the best solution. And so knotweed's tough and really herbicide is the only thing that they found that makes a dent in this stuff. So, so to get to your question, yes, invasive species are a huge problem. And, and I would describe them uh, largely in that, in a third bucket, which is around habitat loss hmm. and uh, issues of, of habitat. So homes for our animal and fish friends. Yeah, uh, and p- for people who don't know uh, knotweed, you've probably seen it. Sometimes around here it gets confused with, with bamboo. It's not uh, bamboo. And then the one of the other, I mean, it's it, it's just hard to deal with, as, as you say. Um, it, there are foragers who, who eat it. When it's, when it's very young, it has a very pleasant kind of lemony taste. But try not to... Uh, Try not to forage it because you're only spreading it because a very, very small amount of, of knotweed can, can take root elsewhere. And it's, uh, it's just really, really tough uh, to deal with. So you mentioned the CSOs, and I wanted to ask you about them. Uh, whenever I see posts online on social media about CSOs, there's a lot of outrage. There's a lot of like, why are, why are the politicians letting this happen, right? What are CSOs and, and what can we reasonably do about them? Sure. So CSOs stands for combined sewer overflow. Uh, So this is what happens in a combined sewer system. So an old system, a way of processing water that is flowing through the streets, the storm water that I mentioned, and also the sewage that comes out of our, our houses and our businesses and our schools. And so they're all in one, picture them all just in one pipe, go into the water treatment plant, wastewater treatment plant. And when there's a really, really heavy rain, it's overwhelming. It's just too much. It can't go through the wastewater treatment plant. So, because during a heavy rain, I mean, those pipes are full, like they are, you can see the streets, the water sheeting off. So in those cases, they have to bypass the wastewater treatment plant. And in, and often that will mean that raw sewage is discharged directly into a receiving water body in our case, the Merrimack River, which, as we've mentioned before, is, as everybody knows, a drinking water source and a, a place where people swim and fish and, um, and boat and, and enjoy. So, so that's where it gets a little complicated. Some of the context is important to know this is not just happening in the Merrimack. This is happening in other locations in Massachusetts and throughout the country. It goes back to this ties back to a larger issue, which is we have some aging infrastructure in our country that really needs attention. You can't use a sewer system that was based off of your population from a century ago. You gotta, it's like, it's like updates to your phone. Like I can't use a flip phone technology nowadays. I'll never keep up. I can barely keep up as it is. So um, CSOs is, is a huge issue around the country. It comes back to infrastructure money. And it's very complicated. Um, I think one of the myths that we could bust today is that it is the fault of the cities. It's not the city of Lowell's fault. It's not the city of Lawrence's fault. It's not the city of Haverhill's fault or the city of Manchester or Nashua. 
which are the five communities, which release combined sewer overflows into our precious river. Now, could they do a better job at reporting and notifying? Yes, they can, and they soon will be, which we're gonna talk about in a minute with our new uh, CSO notification bill. Um, so they could do a better job in some areas, but it is not necessarily their fault. It is just that the cities have grown up and developed at a rate that they cannot keep up with to process our sewage. So this is, and I, I wanna interrupt you here uh, before we get into the, the house bill which was just passed uh, two weeks ago. This is, a, this is all uh, news, I think. Uh, it's a, so you say it's not the, the city's fault, but this is something I hear. I hear that, you know, it's like the, the up in your neck of the woods. It's the New Hampshire cities like, like Manchester that are um, the worst offenders because they don't have to deal with the ramifications of the problem. In other words, everything goes downstream. What does Manchester care, right? And if they have you know, limited funds, why are they going to allocate it to something that does not affect them? Because the sewage in the river is going down towards, towards Nashua. That's incorrect, you'd say. Well, I would just say that it is a complicated issue. Mm. So why are they going to care? Because the EPA is going to make them care through a consent decree. So mm. uh, this past summer, uh, uh, please take a look uh, to any listeners, please look it up. The city of Manchester came to an agreement with the EPA to invest $231 million in their sewer infrastructure. So that is a huge victory. That's what we're working towards. That's the kind of infrastructure fixes we need. Can um, we start to move that in some of these other cities? Yes, I think that we can. But when I say it's not their fault, I just mean that it's a very complicated issue. I don't know if blame is necessarily that helpful uh, Always, in some cases, it can be, and, and we will cast it when it is time. But to re what we're at is problem solving and how do we come up with collaborative solutions. So some of that is public pressure on the cities, but even more so, it is on our members of Congress to activate federal money to fix this infrastructure. These, like I said, it's across the country. These are massive uh, bills. When you look at fixing sewage infrastructure, ripping up your streets, replacing pipes, huge engineering feats, that, that project in Manchester is going to take 20 years. Is that fast enough? No, we don't think so. But it's a step. So um, we've been kind of working over the years at the Merrimack River Watershed Council on teasing out how can we actually make solutions happen? What are the right pressure points on cities so that they will be more transparent in their reporting. They will come to the table, you know, ready to work with EPA, ready to work with advocacy groups like us, and ready to um, engage the residents who are using these water resources. Um, we're the, the right pressure points. So we, we haven't found it very helpful to just throw a blanket of blame and say, why is the city screwing this up? It's more like, how do we actually make a strategy, tease out what can the city do? What can the feds do? What can uh, groups like us do and, and kind of come together and, and make it happen? So we're not happy with where it's at. Let me be very frank. Sure. We need to do a lot of work and we've been lighting a lot of fires around this, um, but at least we have a path forward. Well, it seems to me that the, the house bill was, was a right step. I know you went on record and said that you were, um, that you applauded was, was the word, um, that the uh, passage of this, uh, Baker signed this two weeks ago. It's called House Bill 4921. Uh, and I want to know a little bit of history about this um, because it's my understanding that this thing lingered around for like a decade before there was any momentum to, to pass this, right? Why did, why did this, why did this bill stay out there in, 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 you know, the ether for so long before people decided, hey, this issue is important? What changed? Yeah. And I think that gets to the heart of the matter, which is, Doug, if you can tell me how to make sense out of politics and uh, make it work a little better, then I think they got a job in D.C. for you. But uh, the, the truth is, is that it, it can get really uh, tricky when you're taking a natural resource issue and trying to make heads or tails of it politically and find the political will to make it happen. So I think that's uh, 
a real elemental, you know, kind of aspect of this is like the political will needs to be there. And so the the notification bill, let me just talk about that for a second. Hmm. What it's going to mandate is that these cities that we're talking about need to do a much better job at transparently reporting when an overflow happens. Um, So there's going to be possibly some more metering equipment that they'll need to either install or uh, maintain and update to make sure that they're getting good numbers on, uh, you know, how much of a volume is, is spilling out into the river. And then reporting that in a timely way to people so they can understand and make possibly decisions in real time to say, you know, there was an overflow on Thursday. I was going to go swimming on Saturday. Maybe I'll hold off for another day because we also don't want people to think that the river is always filthy. It's not. The river has come so far since the Clean Water Act in the 1970s. It has been incredibly cleaned up and I freely swim uh, in the river and, and have a great time. So we don't want to send the message that it's just a kind of filthy cesspool because that's no longer the case. But that doesn't mean we're going to stop and uh, and let everyone off the hook for these pollution issues that we do have. So there'll be some metering equipment, some more reporting that's going to happen. It'll be in a timely, accessible way. They still have to work all that out uh, with the state, whether it's going to be kind of reverse 911 calls or a text message system, or there'll be a website you can check to understand when the overflows have happened. Um, but that'll all be in the works, and, and we hope to be at the table to make sure it happens uh, according to standards that, that we hold. Yeah, what about the technology for the for the tech geeks? I remember talking to Dan Gravak uh, a, a year ago about some of the cool things that were happening as far as monitoring uh, and stuff that was pretty eye-opening to me. What about the technology? Is there stuff that we're, we're almost on the verge of that's going to make this process easier? Yeah, well, I can't speak for the, um, the wastewater treatment plants because uh, and not, and I'm not an engineer, so some of that goes a little above my head on how they're doing their monitoring and metering. But as far as the programming that we do, um, we do test the water quality in the river at select spots all along the river. And yeah, there, there is some neat tech out there. So right now we're, we're on the low tech side, where, which has a lot of value as well. You know, we utilize volunteers who go out and grab samples we drive them to the lab. The lab processes it and tells us what's the bacteria levels at a certain spot. But there uh, are some interesting gadgets out there that are called, they're in situ, which means they're, they remain in place, like a fixed uh, R2-D2 kind of uh, robot that will constantly, all day and all night, record uh, bacteria levels and then you know send them electronically to... to uh, a file that you can upload. And so it's it's a little more of a modern way to capture in real time what's happening with a certain level. So that's something that we've been taking a look at. The price tags are pretty high on those. I think the price is coming down a bit. So it might be something that you see more and more, especially in really big rivers like ours, where it's tough to send a volunteer driving uh, for hours to go snag a sample. So if we can spread out some of those those monitoring devices, it, it could help a lot when you're trying to capture a big river like the Merrimack. Now, I'm, I'm sure there's people listening who, who hear that word volunteer and they're like, oh, I want to do this. I want to get involved. So we'll pause for a second. I want to hear, how do you get involved? How do you volunteer with the organization? Sure. Yeah. So you can really find everything on our website, which is merrimack.org, merrimack.org. How there's did you a- guys get that one? Do you know, that's that's a great website, right? Yeah, well, we're it. You are Merrimack.org. Come our way. Um, And so there's uh, a lot of different ways to get involved. Um, So we look at our kind of community engagement under the umbrella of community science. So community science is a way for people to get involved in uh, data collection or habitat restoration that really teaches some skills and people walk away kind of learning more and understanding more technical uh, skills around how to interface with the environment for a purpose. Like it, we're not just doing it for fun. We, we are collecting this data and really do use it. So we've really strict standards that we have to follow. Um, and all of our processes are approved by the EPA and the Massachusetts Department 
Department of Environmental Protection. Um, but yes, through our website, you can see all the different opportunities. We're rolling a whole bunch more out this year. I'd like to give a shout out to our volunteer or our community engagement coordinator, Maya Sterrett, who's been putting together some really fantastic programming for this year under that community science umbrella. So we'll be using the iNaturalist program, which is a fun way to observe wildlife and log it on your phone. This is also a very COVID friendly activity because you can just go out by yourself, snag a picture of a snowy owl, upload it to our iNaturalist profile. And all of a sudden throughout the watershed, we're gonna have a lot of different observations. We can start to see trends. When is wildlife popping up at a certain place or a certain time? And so that is gonna be a lot of fun. Yeah, I know you say that fun isn't the purpose. I, I have to say, when I look at uh, the, the, the council's social media, it, it looks like a lot of fun. It makes me want to get out there. Um, I know that's not the point, but it, it, looks, uh, it looks cool. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, uh, going back to the political dimension, there's something I find as, as someone who lives in this area and writes and, and circulates among the, the people uh, who are trying to get things done in this region is there's a bipartisan flavor uh, to the politics that I don't think we necessarily see at the national level. Uh, I've heard uh, Senator DeZoglio talk about water quality issues. I've heard House Rep Kelkhorse, you know, people from different sides of the, and it, it seems to be a, a bipartisan issue. Is, is that your sense? And is there, is there something in the way people are handling this in Massachusetts that might be a model for getting things done elsewhere? Yeah, I think the answer to that is definitely a moving target um, because politics does really change uh, quickly and to, to kind of get ahead of those, that coalition building or that collaborative work. Uh, I think it's a, a real dance. And, you know, like I said, it took almost 10 years to get our CSO notification bill through. That's not even fixing the problem. That's just acknowledging the problem. So, so I think... Uh, any kind of good legislation like that has a long journey ahead of it. But there, again, yeah, like you said, the, the river is not a partisan issue at all. And a lot of our natural resources aren't. So I think when you look at the user groups of the Merrimack, this is a good example of why, for example, um, politicians from across any aisle can say, yeah, that speaks to my constituents because whether you really like, uh, going out to fish uh, with your buddies on a boat in the Merrimack or you live in a dense urban city and it's just right there at your door or you kind of live way up towards the mountains in New Hampshire. Um, like this is a broad swath of different cultures uh, and different ethnicities and races and, and people using the river in different ways, but they're all connected to it. So I can see the draw for a, a our political representatives to say, you know, this is a winning issue because, wow, it's, it's touching on my base. But I, as far as it being a model, I don't know. I think we have a lot of work to do. I, I don't know if we're there quite yet. I, I'd like to believe that we've made some good progress, but we have a lot of work to do in Massachusetts and, and in New Hampshire. Yeah. So what a, now that we've talked about the bill, what is the bill? What does it do? Yeah, exactly. So um, the CSO notification bill it will put a mandate on the CSO communities of Massachusetts. So that'll be Haverhill and Lowell and Lawrence, as far as the Merrimack is concerned, to increase their uh, reporting, their collection of data around when a combined sewer overflow event is happening and then report it out. So I think some of the details are still going to be worked out and, and we hope to be at the table to help the state implement this and make sure that it is really guaranteeing the transparency that we want. And so after an event happens, they'll have data that can go out in a very timely way to residents so they can make decisions about their lives and about, you know, according to the quality of the water. We know that bacteria in the water can dissipate, it can dilute, it can flow away. So there's we're kind of looking at some models to understand how much time it takes for it to travel and and, um, and basically linger around in the water at a certain location. So the Watershed Council is working on that. Um, 
those kind of mathematical modeling with some partners, um, the engineering firm Brown and Caldwell, and we're working with the city of Newburyport on that, um, and still have some work to do to, to fully understand that. But I think this bill will be a really, really good step in people just getting the information they need about the quality of their water. As far as the work of the Watershed Council, uh, there were two things I wanted to ask you about. Tomorrow at noon, you have uh, an event uh, that has to do with solar, uh, and people can go to your Facebook page and sign up for this uh, virtual event. What is that going to be? Yeah, please uh, check it out. It's going to be really fun. We're teaming up with Revision Energy, which is a solar energy company that has done a lot of work uh, with community groups and, and nonprofits to increase the amount of residential solar that's that's going in. Um, and so we're going to do a lunch and learn at 12 noon on Thursday, January 21st. It'll be pretty interesting. Learn how water issues intersect with climate change and then how solar energy could be a potential solution to kind of draw that line from sun to water. So I think it'll be really informative. There's some uh, super smart folks that will be uh, teaming up to do that lunch and learn. So check it out tomorrow at noon. Like you said, you can find it on our Facebook page. Okay. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is I saw something on your webpage that you're partnering with Elevated Thoughts, which is the arts organization that's based in Lawrence to produce uh, a, a video. What can you tell us about the video and the relationship with Elevated Thoughts? Yeah. So definitely a big shout out to our partners, Elevated Thought, uh, which is an arts organization out of Lawrence. Uh, they do incredible work. A lot of the murals that you'll see around Lawrence are, uh, are, were uh, created by them. And so we're coming together. They also produce uh, short films. And so we're coming together with them to make an explainer video about the CSO issue. The CSO issue, you know, we've talked about it a lot on this podcast, but it comes up all the time. It is a real hotspot for people who know. And then for people who don't know, they should know. So we want to create a two to three minute explainer video, lay it all out on the table uh, to dissect the issue, get away from the like, you know, kind of tunnel vision blame game and really figure out how we're going to solve this thing uh, and what can we can do about it. So we look forward to, to that. It should be out uh, by mid-April. We want to get it out before the recreation season starts. So stay tuned uh, again to our website, merrimack.org to see the CSO explainer video yeah, with our partners, Elevated Thought. Great. So I wanted to ask a little bit about you and, and your journey into this position. You, you came into this role at a very strange time, right? You moved into this right when, when COVID broke. I'm sure it changed the nature of the organization. Um, it must have been, I remember uh, interviewing Courtney Sale from the uh, Merrimack Repertory Theater. And I think you guys kind of started about the same time. So she was, you know, starting to take over the MRT just as you were taking over this. That must have been crazy to start, you know, this new role in light of uh, a very uncertain world. Uh, Doug, it's, it's been a journey. <laughs> yeah. Already. I don't know if it's only been a year, but I guess it has. Uh, yeah, so I came to the Merrimack River Watershed Council in mid-March. Um, so, yeah, there's some of our own staff that I have never really met in person yet. So um, I think that goes a long way to say how strange of a year it's been. But um, yeah, I think the, the, the journey has been a long one. It's been an interesting uh, crash course, but it's really tested us and tested the mission and um, kind of the backbone of the organization. And to be honest, we are doing okay um, through the public health crisis and the economic collapse and uh, you know, reckoning with racial equity issues that, that this country is going through. Um, we are kind of coming out on the other side and we know that our mission is really important and, and it's well tested. The, the river keeps flowing. And to be honest, these issues really intersect with public health. They intersect with the local economy and they intersect with racial equity. So we're not really running away. We're kind of going right through. We're finding that you know, issues of essential services like water uh, are, are at the heart of, of all these issues. So we're doing our best. We've had to cancel a ton of events that's really, that, that stinks. There, there's no way around that. Um, you know, meetings with people have obviously been all virtual, but we're getting really good at virtual. So uh, hopefully you'll see tomorrow and on the webinar um, on the 21st, 
that uh, the virtual skills are, are getting good and we're just engaging people anyway. Like we can't stop, won't stop. So uh, it's been a wild ride of a year, but uh, we're plugging away and, and we're hopeful that once we can kind of move past the challenges of not being able to do in-person work and um, that uh, we'll, we'll be taken off, like we'll really, really be hitting our stride. What about your own path to this uh to this role on on paper at least from what i can tell you had a sort of nomadic existence up until you moved to new hampshire right you lived in guatemala you lived in in alaska or you worked in alaska you were in washington dc at one point it sounds like you're in washington state right where did you grow up sure yeah yeah i grew up in connecticut so uh do have the the new england roots um but yeah i spent a lot of time uh working in different parts of the world and was really focused in the Pacific Northwest before coming back east. And um, it also seems as though you had varied interests, right? Because your, your bio mentions the arts, uh, science, food policy. When did all these things kind of come together around the Merrimack River? Yeah, that's a good, interesting question. So, um, yeah, I do have a, a background as an artist, and I feel like that has kind of influenced how I see science and ecology. Now, I and I'm going, going to interrupt for one second. When you say an artist, what do you mean specifically? You're talking music, you're talking painting or visual arts? Yeah, a, a little of all of the above. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of painting and, and drawing and, and some music. Um, and I feel like that really kind of helped me once I went back to school for uh, environmental science and kind of, kind of worked around my naturalist brain and, and gained some skills there because I feel like it was really helpful to see things in different ways. So I don't have, you know, I didn't grow up very good at math or science at all. And so I think being able to see things through visuals and drawings and, and kind of paint my way through my training in ecology, I think that that helped me come up a little bit uh, in a fresh way. And so that kind of came together um, with some work that I'd done for a really long time um, with tribal communities up in Alaska and, and then again in Washington State. Um, and so I think that that kind of community level work combined with these natural resource issues means that you know, the Merrimack River challenges were, they felt, um, they felt like a fit to me. They feel really hard and like there's a lot of work to do um, it, it is no joke when we start talking about, you know, we haven't even really got into what's this area going to look like, um, you know, when my kiddo is my age and, you know, we see temperatures rising a, a few degrees. Um, so, so the challenges aren't, are not, they're not light, but I think that my background and um, being able to move around a lot and experience life in different communities has, has been helpful to to feel like we can we can fight this fight. Yeah, yeah I, I find that the, the sort of intersection between art and science fascinating. And it's something like I don't think we pay a lot of attention to uh, now. We have a writer for the magazine named Sarah Corshane who writes a regular column called The Backyard Naturalist. She has a background in English literature, but right now she teaches science. I think she's actually a chair in the Department of Science at Northern Essex Community College. Um, and it's great. It's it's great to be able to read somebody who has a sensitivity to language and the way words work together and the musicality of language, but who also understands, how, you know, how to collect data and what's BS and what isn't BS and all the great things that, that come from, um, from science. And I even think of um, uh, Charles Darwin. Uh, I, I've, I think in his notebooks, he claimed his ability to recognize patterns in nature. A part of that came from reading John Milton over and over and over again and starting to see patterns in the language. And then he started to see patterns unfold in, in other ways. And that's, it's something I wish we had more of. It's, it's, it feels like uh, these two realms have been kind of split and pulled apart when they, they don't really need to be. You know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great point. And have you ever heard of cloud brain and waffle brain? I do. I have not. Tell me. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I think um, maybe it's kind of the combination of those. It's kind of seeing nature through a bit more of a cloud brain, mm-hmm. I guess it would be uh, someone who spent more time looking at patterns and playing music or um, experimenting with art. 
and you have a little bit more of a cloud vision. Um, and then a lot of time in science with data and spreadsheets and boxes, a little more the waffles, you know, like it's the crisscross uh, waffle shapes where things are fit more in boxes. And so I think being able to weave between those is, is really uh, helpful when you, when you were trying to fix real problems with our natural resources through scientific and evidence-based solutions. But we can't just do it with spreadsheets because we got to be creative. Like the, the issues are too hard. The politics are too gridlocked. We have to be kind of dancing our way through, through it. So I, yeah, I agree. I like what you're saying about Charles Darwin. Yeah. So you... I, I have one more question for you before uh, we open it up and see if, if Lou has questions. Lou uh, yeah, usually has a few questions for the guests. Um, what's your favorite thing about your job? What do you like most? Yeah. Um, to, to be totally honest, my favorite thing is working with our staff. Um, we have such a great crew. Uh, we're, we're small but mighty. So our, you know, in a small nonprofit, you kind of wear a lot of hats and it just makes me really proud to see our folks kind of running around doing all kinds of things to, to keep this ship floating. Um, so I, I would say that our, our staff is a super team and they really are doing right by all the folks who volunteer, anyone who donates, anyone who has, you know, connected with the watershed council or gone on a paddling trip, any of that. I think it's all due to our staff. So, so yeah, a big thank you to them. Yeah. So I see our second guest has joined us, but, but don't leave yet. Lou, do you have a quick question for, for Matt? Yeah. The watershed council. Yeah, Matt, I'm going to answer a question for you and then I'm going to ask a question and they're intertwined. The reason your bill took so long to get through to to create a viable notification system for CSOs in a river was because they don't want us to know the CSOs. Because what will happen is, I think you've become aware of this, there are people, and I've lived on a river my entire life, there are people in this area who have no idea this is going on. Absolutely no idea this is going on at all. And awareness will cause, will raise pressure on them to fix this problem. And you have to talk me off the ledge a little bit because when you were talking about towns not being, it's not their fault, I'm hoping what you meant to say, or I think what you meant to say was it's not necessarily their responsibility. The taxpayers of Manchester can't fix this problem alone. The taxpayers of Lawrence and Lowell can't fix this uh, problem alone. If Newburyport, I live in Newburyport, if Newburyport spent $10 million a year trying to fix this problem, that's $600 to me every year, every man, woman, and child in Newburyport. It's bigger than the individual communities. When are we going to get Elizabeth Warren? When are we going to get Ed Markey? When are we going to get all the representatives on here to get some money to help fix this problem? Because as you stated, it's not just the Merrimack. This is nationwide. People are looking this all over the Northeast, certainly, all over the older ceremonies, all of the older uh, cities and towns that have this infrastructure problem. I don't, know if there's a, I don't know if there's a solution for this. What's plan B if we don't have the money to fix these overflow problems? And I'll start you with Manchester, because wasn't it Manchester who put storage tanks in for the overflow? Was that an effective solution? I know they... Um, that, that can be an effective solution, yeah. absolutely. And, and I just want to say, I, I can't agree more. It, yeah, I, I was um, definitely speaking in the spirit of, of what you're, you're communicating. Yeah. That it's a complicated issue. We see the... CSO notification bill that us and our supporters have been fighting for for a long time yeah. as step one. Yep. Step one to unlock federal funding, which we are very hopeful that we might be able to see in the next handful of years flow through some infrastructure spending. And sewage isn't even the only issue. There's right. a lot of infrastructure issues, but we absolutely need to protect our water sources. And it's going to take a lot of money to replace yeah. uh, that infrastructure. So, but I think it was last year. Very, I think it was yeah. last year that Newburyport put a kind. Of, it was a flag system out there for a while, and people went nuts. And you get people who lived in Newburyport all their lives, and you're living on the harbor. You're living at the mouth of the Merrimack, and God, there knows there are a ton of issues. There's the marshes. There's invasive species. There's uh, erosion. There's uh, jetty management. Mouth of the Merrimack management. But to me, and I've lived on the river all my life, literally on the river all my life. Uh, the CSO problem is the major problem, and I think you you almost have to panic people. You have to put it in front of people and have them walk out to the harbor one day and find out probably shouldn't go in. There's a lot of sewage in the water right now. Yeah, 
I, I agree. Yeah. I think that's well well said, and that echoes our approach is to get the information to folks. And and the last caveat I'd say, and and then I'll I'll let you go, is that CSOs are the really tangible issue that people can picture, and you can picture a pipe that's kind of overflowed, like like our description earlier. Mm-hmm. But it's really not the only issue, and it's maybe not even the worst issue. This stormwater problem is is a constant issue. So it's not just when a wastewater treatment plant can't handle um, an amount during a given rainstorm. It's during any rain. There's runoff that that is constantly flowing and deteriorating the water quality. So we want to make sure we frame it alongside the other problems, and we don't just hope to solve CSOs and move on. So um, yeah, it's super complicated, but uh, I, I, I completely agree with your sentiments. So our guest today was, uh, our first guest was Matthew Thorne, the executive director of the Merrimack River Watershed Council. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Really great discussion. Really appreciate it. Um, Merrimack.org is the website or head over to the Facebook page. And if you have a chance, sign up for the um, webinar tomorrow at noon. Matt, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Good to be with you. Yes. Great. Okay. And our second guest coming on right now, uh, Dr. Dow, how are you today? Can we see her yet? How are you? I'm doing great. We're going to give you, oh, there you are. Okay. Um, Our guest, our second guest today is Dr. Leanne Chu Dow, who is an optometrist and she's the head of the Haverhill Family Eye Care in in Haverhill. Um, The first question, since I was just talking about reading with, with my last guest that I have to ask, I think about this a lot. This is the question I would ask any optometrist. I read a lot. I love reading. What should I be doing for my for my hygiene for my eyes? How how can I? What should I be doing for longevity if I want to keep reading my whole life? Yeah. So um, you know, beside um, we we check for glasses, but we uh, also check for the health of the eyes. So uh, the health of the eyes is very important. Um, it can tell a lot a lot of diseases from the body. We can pick up problems from the brain. So um, glasses is not the magic. Uh, <laughs> that's not the answer. Um, if your if your eyes are not healthy, then it doesn't matter what glasses you wear. Um, it won't be as clear as you want uh, it to be. So definitely, you know. Diff- um, I'm all for prevention. Uh, prevention is the key. Uh, it costs more to treat than to prevent. So, uh, you know, eye health, ocular nutrition, um, and definitely nowadays with the um, digital uh, world, we are in front of the computer, cell phone. Uh, we babysit our children with um, cell phones, iPads. And in school now, with the COVID especially, we all on remote learning. So the blue light from the computer is definitely proven to be unhealthy for the eyes. So there are glasses to protect your eyes from blue light. Um, there's um, eye vitamin supplements that you can take. Um, especially uh, uh, supplements that have lutein and CSN thing, which are found in spinach, kale. Uh, kale is actually, you know, in in um, in the market right now. is very healthy for every part of your body. Uh, so blueberries and diet full of antioxidants, um, anti-aging, uh, and sun protection. Sun protection. If you're outside, we live in New England. We, you know, with the snow, bright snow out there, it doesn't matter what season it is. Sunlight damages your eyes. Smoking, the smoking uh, increased the risk for macular degeneration three times. Hmm. Um, so the eyes start to change at age 20. Um, so you want to start, you know, taking care of your eyes right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the the blue light thing because I guess it's it's hard for someone like me, not a doctor, not not a medical professional, to know what's what's legit out there in the world, right? Because I I have friends who wear the orange glasses because they're worried about the blue light, and it's it's just hard to understand what's kind of like who's being a kook, you know what I mean? Like what's <laughs> what's legit. Um, so it's great hearing from you. Like, should I get those orange glasses and be wearing them at night? Is that is that helpful? Yeah, that's a great question. I uh, I tell all my patients uh, and my my staffs. So, uh, we we just actually uh, had a, a finish our office training. Uh, we want to educate everybody about you know what's uh, what's good out there, what's uh, really working. So the yellow glasses that um, you know you can buy online, those are more like uh, you know increasing, enhance the contrast at night, cutting down the glare a little bit, but it's not to protect from blue light. So, um, uh, you know, we, uh, there are specific labs uh, that are certified for this. Uh, we use Hoya uh, product and, you know, Hoya are very, you know, known in the lenses uh, world and uh, optical world. Um, 
the they provide a few options. You know, uh, we have different options for different patients who try to accommodate for everybody. Um, so if you're on the computer or just you know light use uh, digital device person, a couple of hours a day, the coding that we you know uh, out there is an anti glare coding, but not all anti glare coding can block the blue light. So you have to specifically ask for the one that blocks blue light. Uh, we also have. Um, uh, the one that uh, is called blue tech lens where it blocks 100%. Um, so these lenses actually go through different technological phases um, for during manufacturing process. They incorporate real human ocular pigments in the lenses itself to absorb all the blue light so that the blue light doesn't get transmitted into your eyes. Um, there are you know online sites where uh, you can buy um, uh, yellow glasses, you know, like a game company, but you have to make sure that it's hundred percent protection. Yeah. What about what about children? Are we seeing more eye problems among children because of screen time? Oh yes, um, especially recently, COVID time. Especially we're you know doing remote learning. I have a lot of um, children, even teachers. Uh, or patients who um, work at home remotely coming in with, uh, we call it computer vision syndrome. <laughs> we call that, uh, you know, loss of accommodation, spasm with accommodation, uh, headaches, frontal headaches, dry eyes. Uh, so children ended up needing more reading glasses now because we're on the computer after, you know, remote learning through the school day. We are on the iPad, cell phone, playing video games. Uh, we have less time outdoor. So we, we've been having seeing a lot of, uh, you know, more patterns like that lately. Um, but, you know, throughout the school year, definitely, especially before uh, school starts, we tend to see, um, uh, you know, a lot of children and throughout the year, they come back presenting with computer vision syndrome, accommodative dysfunction. Um, so um, very common problem right now. Yeah. So when you were young, were you interested in medicine? And, and when did you decide that this is this was going to be the area you were going to specialize in? Yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to be in the medical field. And uh, what really got me into optometry um, is first of all, I have a lot of exposure to, you know, um, optometry field. I used to work in a lab with doing experiments on uh, the retina uh, of the rats uh, during college. And then uh, back when I was in um, uh, sixth, seventh grade, you know, I was in a soccer team and uh, I got hit in the eye with a soccer ball. Uh, and uh, I was very lucky, you know, I was too young to really know the symptoms uh, to really warn me to go see an eye doctor. And that week, I just happened to have an, an eye exam and I got dilated and I was rushed to the emergency right away. <laughs> and I got a retinal detachment. Uh, it was, wasn't for the optometrist, primary eye care optometrist, which what we do now, um, we catch things, you know, we're the gatekeeper. And uh, my vision got saved. I was almost half, uh, the detachment was almost halfway. Okay. So um, the article in the most recent issue of Merrimack Valley Magazine, uh, we did a series on local um, companies that had a multi-generational aspect. And sometimes it was, you know, the company had been passed from the parents onto the children, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, your story was a little bit unusual because it wasn't necessarily the company or the line of work that was passed down. It was the work ethic because both of your parents had a phenomenal work ethic. They were working very, very long hours for a long period of time. Um, both of them have um, an entrepreneurial kind of spirit. Your, your, uh, your mom owned and ran a, a nail salon for 20-something 27 years. Yeah. Um, and your dad, uh, working all these crazy jobs, eventually he, he opens a martial arts school. I have to ask about this. I have to <laughs> ask about this because I've heard, uh, I, I know, I, I like martial arts. I grew up, you know, I was a karate kid, you know. Yeah, so yeah. I know Japanese martial arts. I know Chinese martial arts. I even know Brazilian martial arts. I even know martial arts from France. I don't know anything about Vietnamese martial arts. Okay, what is yeah. your What did your dad teach? What is the Vietnamese martial art? Yeah, well, thank you for asking. Um, my uh, my uh, dad, um, we we uh, we do uh, Vietnamese traditional martial art. That's the um, you know way to translate it. It's this martial art has been in Vietnam. Uh, having a history of thousands of years of contributing to the um, protection and development of Vietnam uh, through foreign invasion, especially, uh, you know, the Northern invasion from, uh, you know, in, in the, um, from China, uh, all the uh, neighboring countries. 
Um, and it also represent nowadays represent the cultural part of it. Um, there's a lot of uh, philosophical uh, teaching that we, you know, we adhere to. Uh, it relates to the um, many, many dynasties in Vietnamese history um, that consists in this uh, type of martial art. It um, there are many weapons, bare hand forms, techniques that are related to Vietnamese generals, emperors that develop the type uh, contribute to this development of martial art. So do you, um, do you practice this yourself? Uh, yes, I'm very, uh, uh, I feel very fortunate and lucky to, you know, be my dad's daughter who get to have it in the family. So, <laughs> and uh, this time martial art is actually uh, stopped um, or prohibited uh, from practicing and teaching during the um, um, uh, uh, during the communist um, uh, you know era, uh, but after it, in 1995 um, it was allowed to to be open, and my grandmaster, which is my my dad's master, um, started to open the school. But during the prohibition period, um, it was only passed with generations in the family, so it is considered as family uh, type of martial as well. Uh, so from then on, you know, my dad, my dad happened to be going um, to school during the Vietnam War uh, to be in the Air Force. And he, you know, he practiced martial arts there. And that's how, you know, he, he bring it on to when we come to America. And, uh, you know, he wants to be the pioneer to continue uh, this type of martial art, pass it on, bring it out to, you know, uh, the land outside of Vietnam. Where is his school located? Uh, we're located in uh, Dorchester in Boston. Um, the practice place is at Dorchester House Clinic. Uh, we have a big gym there where we, uh, you know, have a lot of people in the community to come support us, uh, different uh, um, generations, uh, uh, Boston public students, even, you know, it's outside neighboring cities, they all come. Yeah. yeah. So reading the article, uh, one big question I have for you is, is where do you find the time? Because now you're, we're talking about martial arts. I get the sense that you're very athletic. You're playing tennis and you have a lot going on. And you, you live in Boston right now and you commute to Haverhill. Is that correct? <laughs> where do you find the time to play tennis and to, uh, and to be throwing the weapons around and doing all these other things you're doing to keep yourself healthy? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's all about time management, I, I guess. And uh, I'm very fortunate to have my parents to help me in, in the family uh, to take care of my children while I'm at work. Uh, <laughs> um, so if I need want to play tennis, then uh, I have to really have to wake up really early, wake up at 5 a.m. on even on weekends uh, to play from six to seven. And then by the time I get back, my children will be up. I'll take care of them uh, or I go to play before I go to work. <laughs> if I jog, then I jog late at night after I take care of the kids. Uh, so, you know, I have, I, I got motivated too by uh, seeing patients, actually, even my patients where um, this patient, I really remember very well. She's, uh, she just had a quadruplets and she still runs for the marathon. And I asked her, where did you find the time to, uh, you know, with four children to run? And she said, you got to make time for yourself. You just do it. Um, so it's about, all about time management and the determination. Uh, health is the key. My parents always tell me health is gold. Um, you know, if you lose it, you, it doesn't matter what you have. You just <laughs> right, right, right. So we only have a few minutes left, but yeah. um, another big question. Why Haverhill? With, with everything you've said, what brought you to, to open an office in Haverhill, Massachusetts? Right, yeah, it would, it would have been, I would have moved to Haverhill myself a long time ago. It's just because I have two children and my parents, uh, all their friends are in Boston. So, uh, you know, they stay there. So I have to live in Boston at this time. But Haverhill, um, I, uh, I was looking around somewhere in, uh, up north here and uh, it just happened by chance. A friend just sent me, uh, you know, a link to, you know, the practice and I was looking to it, getting myself engaged. And um, I explored the city has lots of historical background. Um, you know, the first Macy's here, uh, you know, the shoe factory, lots of history in Haverhill actually. And I actually like cities like this where I can get to know my patient at uh, the patient doctor rapport. Uh, patients get to know me walking across the street, my bus driver, the bus driver can honk at me and say, hey, Dr. Dow, I'm wearing my, your sunglasses. Uh, go to a restaurant seeing my patients. So it's like a family here. And that's why I named this, uh, I call this office Haverhill Family Eye Care uh, from generations down, from grandparents down to grandchildren. And I do have a lot of generations in this office from grandparents down to grandchildren. 
And I, I love the, how the fact that, you know, we get to know each other. It's not too big, but, you know, it, it's the relationship that counts. Yeah, yeah. Well, next time I need my eyes checked, you, you'll have another patient. I'm going to get in touch with you. What's your website? I'm sorry? What's your website? Oh, HayRollFamilyEyeCare.com. Okay, great. And Doctor on Instagram and Facebook. Excellent. Okay, follow on social media. Dr. Dow, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you coming on the 495 this week. Well, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. All right, take care. Goodbye. Take okay, care. everybody. I'll see everybody next week.